Welcome to this episode of AU Manufacturing Conversations with Brent Bulitsky, featuring one of the companies we're putting forward as part of our quest to identify Australia's 50 most innovative manufacturers. This is the first time we've ever run this campaign, and we absolutely, positively couldn't have gone ahead without the generous help of Bosch Australia Manufacturing Solutions, SMC Corporation Australia, and lead sponsor MYOB. MYOB is a business management platform that brings together key workflows to fit business needs. MYOB has been part of the fabric of doing business in Australia and New Zealand for more than 30 years and integrates manufacturing, inventory management and accounting to help businesses streamline business processes. Okay, Richard, thanks very much for joining us here on AU Manufacturing Conversations. A pleasure to finally have you on the program. I'd like to begin by asking the standard opening question, and that is, of course, how did you get here and what do you make? I think it's best to start with what we make. And the glamorous world of manufacturing, you know, not everyone thinks it's so glamorous, but... Um, They're wrong. What we, yeah. <laughs> um, what we do is we build industrial-scale ovens and furnaces, thermal processing equipment that allows other people to manufacture goods and also to perform research to allow new processes to be developed. So thermal processing equipment that allows other people to make things. Mm -hmm. That's the second half. Let's do the first half second. Uh, How did you get here? How did did we get here? My father started the business in the late 1960s. At that stage, Australia was in the post-war boom period. There was a mining sector that was just about to explode with prosperity. And he started a business after a long career in manufacturing, engineering and consulting, both here and abroad. And he carried the business forward through a very exciting period of manufacturing growth in Australia with the car industry in particular being a a key element of the business's activity over that time, but with some other core threads, which I'll talk about a little later. Fast forwarding to around 2000, when I took over management of the business from my father, I had been in... Since graduating as an engineer, I'd worked at Ford Motor Company, which is an excellent introduction to manufacturing and engineering. They had an excellent engineering cadetship program, and I found myself in that program along with about 50 other people in 1990. And I worked there for about four or five years before joining Furnace Engineering. And in the year 2000, I took over running of the business on a day-to-day basis for my father. And one of the first things that we as a team decided we needed to focus on was the fact that the car industry was under constant threat, we felt, and we needed to diversify ourselves away from the car industry or at least be prepared for it to diminish inactivity as far as we could see it. So the second aspect that we dealt with uh, in those early years of 2000 was the model of the business had somewhat changed. For the previous 20 years, what had served the business exceptionally well was a licensing approach. That is, go to the people who make the best equipment for that particular purpose, wherever they were in the world, secure a license agreement and build the equipment for the local market under that license agreement. He had the virtue of saying, right, well, don't have the arrogance to think that you need to reinvent the wheel in Australia when it's been done somewhere else. However, obviously, around that time, 2000, the world was beginning to become a smaller place with the advent of the internet, apart from anything else. Mm -hmm. And whilst businesses previously located in other parts of the world were happy for an Australian company to license their technology, increasingly they felt themselves able to deal with those markets directly themselves. 
So we found ourselves in a position of having to parlay our experience and know-how into products that we developed ourselves. And we managed to successfully do that and make that transition away from dependency on foreign technology to being, by and large, a company that makes its own designs and builds its own equipment to those designs. Right. And you mentioned that you make furnaces and ovens. Uh, For those who don't know, what's the distinction? There are various different distinctions, but in simple terms, temperatures below about 500 degrees Celsius, we call that an oven. It generally involves a lot of circulation of gas or air, and temperatures above 500 tend to be radiant heat, and therefore we call those pieces of equipment a furnace. So if you like, there's a simple definition. Below 500 degrees, we call it an oven. Above 500 degrees, we call it a furnace. Got it. And so is each machine you sell more or less custom builds, or do you have standard products? We have a saying here that every sale, we've got another repeat sale, for example, we'll say. The guys will tell me, you know, we've succeeded in getting another repeat of that project, and I'll wait, and they say, except for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then begins usually a reasonable length list of different features that are required by our customers. I think the answer to your question is, Every piece of equipment is customised. There's almost nothing that we build that is not, to some extent or other, customised. And in many cases, those customisations are just advancements in technology or learnings from previous jobs. Or in some cases, or many cases, a customer acquires a piece of equipment that's not approximately the right size, temperature, capacity for their purpose, but exactly the right size, temperature and other features so, yes, very much a customised business. I had a little look around and saw some mentions of export achievements. How important is export to your business? Well, it's very important to us, and it has played out in different ways over the last 50 years. I think it would be fair to say our first export period of activity was in the 1990s. At that time, Australia had a very active aluminium industry in terms of primary smelting, secondary manufacturing and tertiary recycling. And we were able to take our know-how developed largely in the local market and apply that to markets, particularly in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Philippines, very successfully in that period up until probably the Asian crunch in 1998 and then picking up again to a lesser extent during the first decade of the 2000s right up until the GFC after which time that particular market declined. But around the same time, we'd found ourselves in opportunistic situations to take advantage of export opportunities. And probably our largest contract ever in the history of the company was one performed for export in the nickel industry and for a company based in the African continent. We'd certainly had a lot of practice at exporting. And I think if there's a lesson there... We had a sales director who was really focused on the opportunities in the export market in the 1990s. He did a terrific job at getting us a toehold in the market and that gave us experience of what was required in different markets and an understanding of how we had to adapt our way of working so that it would work in with what the customers were needing and expecting in those export markets. So then later on when the opportunity to export opportunistically came along, in some cases from existing Australian customers going offshore, in other cases pure export opportunities, we were, as it were, well-equipped 
to understand what needed to be done and the export side of it was less of a challenge than it might be for someone who was doing it for the first time and we were therefore able to concentrate on just the execution challenge which is present in every project we do to make sure that we're doing a good job for that particular project. And another sort of pretty general question, I'd like to know if we can get just a sense of the size of the team you're working with and its composition. I imagine there's a bunch of different engineering disciplines in there as well as some trades, but if you could give us sort of an overview, that'd be handy. I think it's fair to say that um, both trade and engineering are very important in our business. We've got roughly, I think it'd be fair to say, an equal split of engineering and trades skilled trades in the business. We're a team of roughly 60 to 80 people, depending on the business cycle. And so you would say there's probably around about 30 engineering staff, 30, if you take 80 as your base, around 30 engineers, 30 manufacturing and 20 admin type staff or other disciplines such as accounting. That's typically the split in a broad brush. When you go down to the engineering side, it's pretty evenly split between mechanical and electrical engineers, although we have had structural engineers, civil engineers, process engineers in roles in the company. Those mechanical electrical tend to be the core disciplines. And on the factory floor, it's likewise split between, in terms of skilled workers, between metal workers of one sort or another. There could be, you know, welders, skilled welders, machinists, to a small extent, and certainly electrical and gas fitting trades are pretty critical to the business. Gas fitting is one of those ones that, whether you know it or not, there is a bunch of Australian regulations to keep our gas appliances safe, and that is a very heavily regulated discipline. I know you do some kind of work you can't talk about so openly, and you know that's the nature of business-to-business companies a lot of the time, and that's fine. Does that Do you understand that as sort of frustrating or glamorous or a bit of both? What's your point of view there? Whether it's secret or not, working on something which is a good engineering challenge or a a source of, how should I say, perhaps national pride or, or pride from people within the sector, in broad terms, to be involved in a sexy project is very stimulating for the team. Everyone gets a great sense of common purpose in those sort of circumstances. So we've got customers who I would regard as Australian manufacturing champions and they're people that, that are no doubt well represented within your podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose it's hard to single out people because, or firms, I should say, but in terms of younger firms, firms like Cochlear and ResMed, uh, the type of companies, Trajan, uh, another one, there are so many, I wouldn't want to single out any of them, but there is an ecosystem of emerging technology in Australia that is slowly maturing and hopefully continuing to grow. And yes, there is a source of pride of being involved in projects that make a difference in some way or shape or form. There's emerging space sector, as you're well aware, and we have our toe in that water And it's exciting for people to know that our equipment might be used to get satellites up into space. So, yes, there is that element of it. It is a little frustrating, of course, from a marketing point of view. You'd like to be able to talk openly to prospective customers about the sort of stuff that we've done with other customers. But actually, culturally, we're very, very comfortable with the idea that we need to respect people's confidentiality. And if we jump out there and and willing to talk about everyone's processes, whether they're giving us permission or not, 
it's probably not culturally aligned with what a lot of our customers would expect anyway. So it does mean that we have to, when we're trying to describe how we're going to be able to help a prospective customer, we have to talk around the subject a little bit so as to respect the privacy of our existing clients. Nature of the job, I suppose, and it's just plain courtesy to respect people's wishes and if they don't want their stuff out in the open, then so be it. That becomes better default setting is if you look at our websites, very rarely do we actually single out a customer by name. We're happy to show broad brush what sort of things we're doing, but culturally we're, we're comfortable with the idea that people will be able to see from what we do that they don't need to know who we do it for. One of the things I've seen that you could talk publicly about was your work with the Carbon Nexus facility and the engineering award you won for that a few years ago. It's my sense that you sort of, the carbon fibre part of your business has grown up a little bit with the carbon fibre industry in Australia. That might be a misread. It's just a guess sort of thing. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, it's an accurate comment. I think it'd be fair to say that there are customers in the aerospace sector who were really leading light in the emergence of a carbon fibre-based manufacturing industry in Australia. And we had a very active part in some of those projects and source of pride to us, not only to be associated with it, but also to be coming up with rather innovative ways of doing things which were not being done by that customer in any part of their other operations. So solving problems that needed to be solved where there was no existing solution. So we're very proud of that. When it comes to the Carbon Nexus project down at Deakin University, there was a very bold approach by some of the people involved in what was then called VCAM in conjunction with Deakin University, which subsequently obviously took the, the lead position in that, to build capability in both research and manufacturing of carbon fibre in Australia. And I've there's a team down there now that is grimbling away, doing great work, and they've got a, a world-class facility down there to do that. And there was considerable vision shown by the leaders of that project, both from Deakin and VCAM, in actually including Australian industry in the project. And that led to us taking a, a central role in the development of the carbonisation line in conjunction with a partner that we brought to the table, a US company with considerable expertise but also the innovation of equipment that the American company wasn't able to bring to the table and which we had to develop really de novo from scratch. And we were very proud of being able to do that and that the line actually worked exactly as it was intended when it was commissioned. We'd like to take another moment now to acknowledge our sponsors, MYOB, as well as Bosch Australian Manufacturing Solutions and SMC Corporation Australia. There would be no Australia's 50 Most Innovative Manufacturers campaign without them. Be sure to check them each out via the links in the show notes and give them a follow on LinkedIn. And is carbon fibre processing a very meaningful part to your business at the moment? Does it make up a big part of orders? I think it's fair to say that the carbon fibre manufacturing industry probably suffered a little bit of a hiccup given that a lot of it is aerospace-based. You know, three years of people not jumping on planes has meant that the aerospace industry went on a pause for a little while. I think that carbon fibre, like any other material, it's got its place. And when we get over the initial excitement of a new material, whether it be carbon fibre, previously magnesium, 
of course, your audience will be familiar with graphene. That wonder material, everything is better with graphene, uh, (laughs) is, is the simple answer. When the initial excitement about any of these novel materials subsides somewhat, that material will sit in, you know, in the place that's appropriate for it. And there is a place for carbon fibre. It is not the solution to everything, but it is the solution for lightweight applications that require high strength, where cost and production times are not absolutely critical. Having said that, there's also quite a lot of innovation happening around those tech times or manufacturing times. And Swinburne University recently installed a lights out facility just on the CSIRO campus at Clayton. We were involved in that project involving some Austrian equipment, which is basically a lights out carbon fibre composite manufacturing plant. So there's a lot of room for growth in carbon fibre, we think. I think there's a lot of interest because in sectors of the Australian manufacturing industry, not least of which would be the defence sector, having some strong capability within the country of manufacturing parts out of carbon fibre is, I think, a crucial capability for the country. A slight change of direction now. I'd like to get your personal and or company definition of innovation as we're talking about the subject via our 50 Most Innovative Manufacturers campaign. How would you answer? Well, it's an interesting question because you look at the dictionary definition is very, very simple. The root of the word innovate in Latin is new. And it's really, though, for us, in a company sense, we see it as drawing on our expertise and know-how an ability to stretch ourselves beyond our existing knowledge base but building on our existing knowledge base to provide a solution where a new solution is actually required. So we see innovation really being rooted in the need for something which doesn't currently exist in terms of a solution or a piece of equipment or a product and drawing on the skill set that we have and the appetite to stretch ourselves slightly outside of our expertise, but not too far out of our expertise, so we can be confident of providing a technical solution that's well-founded and will do the job for our customer. An interesting part of your application for the campaign that I just mentioned was a mention of your R&D efforts involving at least one stretch innovative project a year. How long has that been a tradition at Furnace? And if you could tell me a little more about it, that would be interesting. Well, it would be nice to say that that's a strategic objective that we set ourselves 15 years ago and that we've done that every year. That would be untrue. The truth is that on many occasions we've found ourselves in the situation of having one such project on the go and then another opportunity comes up and we've leapt into it and we've found ourselves overstretched. So I think that the desire to do innovative work has been there within the team for all the time that I can remember. And the question is making sure that we've got the ability to really provide the focus that is required on those sort of innovative projects and not try and do too many at once and, you know, stuff it up effectively. Be distracted by too many things which require a high level of attention because you're stepping slightly outside of your your normal activity and you really want to make sure that you're able to provide sufficient brain space to do the innovative work, to do the development, and not just to hopefully, wishfully throw a potential solution at the problem and keep your fingers crossed. No, we really want to be able to manage that process well. So I I think that's where that policy really emerged, not through seeking the opportunities. I think 
the team, which, as I say, is fairly strong engineering focus, but even within the trade side, plenty of innovative thinking around how to build things differently and plenty of appetite to take on projects that will stretch people. I think they find that very stimulating. The key is to make sure that we're not taking on too much stretch at the same time. One of those ambitious projects and one which you've put forward for the campaign is the new cyclization furnace for turning precursor materials into carbon fibre. What's the background to the project and what can you say about dragging it through the technology readiness levels? I can talk about some of those things. The actual technology is not mine to talk about. It's a subject to be taken up with Deakin University. The guys there at Deakin, I should say, probably come across a potential process improvement involved in making carbon fibre from a precursor. When you're making carbon fibre, you are taking a polymer and putting it through principally a number of thermal processes to change the structure of the fibre such that at the end you have the carbon fibre that you want with a particular material properties of strength and modulus that you want for a particular application. There's a fairly well-established recipe involving both low temperature, like 200 degrees, and high temperature, 1,500 to 2,000 degree processes. The guys at Deakin came across a step which would effectively divide one of those low temperature processes into two discrete steps. And by doing so, would provide a more energy and plant-efficient way of doing it, as in making carbon fibre. They had certain ideas within the research team what the equipment might look like to perform that additional step. And when they got their thoughts together, they sat down with us. We scratched our heads and looked at it. We could see that there were problems in the approach that they were likely to take. And they, to their great credit, were very open about having a discussion and accepting that there might be other ways of doing things to the extent that they were prepared to back us on a two-stage prototyping process to prove out their process and to prove out the sort of equipment concepts that we had in mind. So we embarked on the first stage, which was a very inexpensive and we call quick and dirty Mm -hmm. solution to provide them with an online ability to simulate the particular thermal process that they wanted to do and... The first stage was achieved within approximately three months' time frame, I think, from memory, which gave them very quick feedback that, yes, they were on the right track and that there was now a case to build for a slightly higher scale of production equipment, which we then embarked on together with them, which was around about a six- to nine-month project, at the end of which they were able to actually produce fibres in small production quantities using their new recipe, their new process. So for us, that was a really interesting exercise in, as you say, getting through the various technical readiness levels to a scale where you could confidently step into production scale from where they got to. So for us, that was a really good exercise, a very willing partner in developing the technology and for us, great challenges because the equipment that was required There was no existing design that could be adapted. It did require quite different design, and ultimately that design was novel enough to be awarded a patent. And so we got the validation that not only, you know, we got the process right, or we were able to help the customer get their process right, but we were also able to notch up a patent, which is a good feeling. 
I bet. I won't ask too much about the ring fencing the IP. It might be getting one into the weeds and two probably something you can't talk about too deeply. I, I wouldn't skip over it. I won't answer it directly, but I would say this. It is one of the problem areas for research institutions. And in this case, we were able to work through that. But in many cases, the research institutions have a formula for approaching collaboration with industry, which makes it difficult to share intellectual property. And I think that's a very key element. If research institutions are able to come up with a way whereby all parties to the research exercise can share in the intellectual property, then I think they'll find that there's more willingness for industry in particular to engage with research institutions on novel developments. Yeah, we might come to... Well, we're at the last question. Is there an issue within manufacturing that isn't currently getting the attention it deserves? It's a standard question for this series. Um, What's your point of view here? I have the feeling, and it might be a bit of a trite answer, but I have the feeling that a lot of levels of government don't really appreciate the role that manufacturing plays within the economy. I think there's a certain amount of lip service given to it by a lot of aspects of government. I think there are a lot of obstacles that are placed in the way of business, which businesses are accustomed to overcoming. But the obstacles can at times become quite restrictive on business. I think taxes is obviously one. I think there are some regressive taxes that stand in the way of businesses growing. Payroll tax is a classic example. If you're a small enough business, you don't pay payroll tax. If you get successful and you grow your business and you grow the number of employees, you're slugged by the government for it. It's not really a huge incentive if you're at that threshold point to actually grow your business. And if you are going to grow your business, hopefully it's going to grow well, well past the point where payroll tax is a huge impost. But I think for smaller businesses growing, it's a big obstacle. Changes to payroll tax in between states, I think it distorts the markets. I think the local regulations versus federal regulations, that's always a challenge for business. I think business is used to overcoming these things, but it'd be nice to know that the true value of manufacturing in terms of employment and contribution to the economy was reflected at the policy level and with appropriate interest from government. I'll add one little thing that... Yeah, um, please do. I feel uh, a great deal of sympathy for very small businesses. Let's say businesses less than 20 people that might not have the ability to have a sufficient infrastructure to deal with it. You know, for a small business, gee, that's a huge impost. Richard, it's been delightful to speak to you and I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, great pleasure. We like what you're doing with manufacturing. I think you you present news from the industry which is stimulating people to think about what manufacturing has to offer for the country and for people individually. So good on you. We like what you're doing. Thank you very much, Richard. We're quite passionate about it and we do our best. And it's good to, as always, talk to members of our community. And thanks for your interest. No worries. Thanks a lot, Brent. No worries.